0: Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the leadership development podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. This week, I'm thrilled to have Tamara Letter joining the podcast. Tamara has served as an elementary classroom teacher, differentiation specialist, and currently she serves as a technology integrator and instructional coach. In addition to her campus duties, Tamara is a presenter and author of A Passion for Kindness, Making the World a Better Place to Lead, Love, and Learn. Tamara, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you.
0: And Tamara, as you know, the show is centered on leadership development. And today, I would love to hear about your leadership journey.
1: Well, it started many, many years ago. <laughs> uh, I went to school to become an educator uh, and right off the bat of graduating college, I ran into issues. I couldn't get a job teaching. So for three years, I Spent that time just doing whatever jobs I could do. I moved out of state. I got married, uh, and I was kind of caught in this turmoil of kind of an identity crisis. You know, who am I? I thought I was going to graduate college and become a classroom teacher, and it just wasn't working that way for me. So I actually had my leadership skills developed in that first three years before I even stepped foot in the classroom. I was an assistant manager in a retail store. I was a front desk meter and greeter at a construction company, and And it was through my interactions with clients and different customers and working with the different types of priorities and schedules and things that I had to do with those responsibilities that I actually started to see that first little glimmer of leadership within me before I even walked through those doors of my first classroom. So we ended up moving across the country to Las Vegas, Nevada, from Florida, and I got my first teaching job. I was so excited. And my classroom was filled with mostly Hispanic students who spoke Spanish, and I don't. I had to adapt, and I had to recognize that um, the picture that I had painted in my head was not going to match the reality of my day. Mm -hmm. And I think those situations where you're faced with change and you don't expect it actually start to cultivate those leadership skills without you even realizing it as well. So through those years, uh, as they fast forwarded, we moved to several different locations. My husband was in the Air Force. So every. Three years, we kind of got uprooted and placed into a new place, which meant I had to start all over again trying to get a job. Mm -hmm. So I got really good at doing interviews, trying to (laughs) get into the classroom. But even that, even interviewing for those positions, some people might look at that through a viewfinder of, wow, you're not climbing that ladder like you should as an educator who wants to aspire to more. I saw that as I'm actually getting better at my communication skills. Mm -hmm. So it's all in the perspective and the view and the lens through which you see these different challenges and life circumstances that come your way. So we eventually moved back east to our home state of Virginia. And I had the opportunity to go back to school for my master's degree in the college that I really wanted to attend when I was an undergraduate, (laughs) but I couldn't get in. So uh, I thought, well, hey, look at this. I can get into the school. And so I started taking classes in the evening. By this point, I was a mother of two with a little baby at home. And I thought, you know, uh, instead of trying to get another teaching job, I think I'm just going to take a break and be home with my kids and, and get my master's degree and see where that leads me. That master's degree opened up so many opportunities for me. It was a degree in educational leadership. I was able to get certified and licensed as a principal from K through 12. And in that process, I realized that I love leadership more than I love administration. I've held true to that definition in my current role as um, an instructional coach and a an technology integrator. I've also been a differentiation specialist working with teachers on differentiating their classroom long before it was a buzzword. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel that anyone can be a leader, you're not defined by the title that you're given. And if you do the job that you have, and it fills you with joy, and you do it well, there are so many opportunities for you to shine with those leadership skills right where you're at. And so for me, that's kind of where I am today. I'm in my 23rd year of education. I am so excited to get the kids back in September and to work with them and to work directly with their teachers. And each day is a new day to make it just a monumental impact on student growth.
0: So I'm so excited that you went through the master's program in leadership because I think everyone assumes that once you go through that program that you automatically will become an administrator. So in that program, what do you feel was the most beneficial, even though you don't have the title of administrator?
1: Well, I thoroughly enjoyed my classes um, because I love to learn. And it was a new trajectory that I had not been on before. My most influential classes was communities and school culture. Mm -hmm. That was one of my favorite ones that I took. Another one that surprised me how much I liked was finance. I never saw myself as a math person, but I was intrigued by how finance wove its way through every aspect of education. And all of our classes were taught by local superintendents and occasionally a principal or two, but most of them were either the the superintendent or the assistant superintendent of the surrounding school districts near the college. So I, I, we were given unique bird's eye perspectives. We actually were handed a district's budget by the superintendent where he said, all right, what do you think we should cut? <laughs> and you're like, oh my gosh, no, 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 no. Like, I, this is my second class. I'm not ready, you know? Yeah,
0: I'm gonna stay but in my was, lane.
1: <laughs> I know, exactly. I was like, what are you doing? But it was really neat because we were empowered to actually have a voice, even as students within that master's program. Another class I thought was very intriguing was also school law, learning what the different laws were, how just the whole educational system had come to be, and the challenges that we're still facing, you know, even in our current year. So lots of great classes that I took in my program.
0: And I love having guests on the show with very different leadership titles because I think it provides our aspiring leaders with a different perspective on leadership. So in your district, what are the responsibilities for a tech integration specialist?
1: Great question. So we do lots of different things. We work directly with teachers and administrators to help them integrate technology in whatever way they need. So if you are a principal and you want a little bit of assistance going into the assessment system and running data reports, I'm your girl, I can help you with that. If you're a classroom teacher and you've heard this big buzz about Seesaw or Flipgrid and you're not sure what to do, you know, we can sit down and I can even you know work with you and come into your classroom and, and help to guide you in those lessons and even teach your students throughout that. So we do just a lot of face-to-face interpersonal support, but we also emphasize the quality instruction throughout it. It's not just, oh, we're using a tech tool and and it's a one-shot deal. It's truly trying to develop those teachers and those administrators that we work with to be stronger and to be more confident in the tools that they're using. And we also deliver professional development sessions throughout our entire district during the summer. Um, We do online courses that we create, um, but we also give like on-the-spot, on-demand PD to teachers within our assigned buildings whenever they need it.
0: What has been the largest change that you've seen in the many roles that you've had in regards to professional educational leadership?
1: Gosh, that's a really good question. (laughs) That's one that gives me some pause for sure. I think the biggest change I've seen is how leaders respond to the initiatives that are out of their control. So, for example, when I started, uh, my first classroom was in 1997. And when I taught in second grade, we didn't have standardized tests. Like they didn't exist. It just, it wasn't, I mean, we didn't even have, to be honest with you, we didn't have like set curriculum. It was, well, what do you feel like teaching the kids? What do you think is important for them to learn? I still remember doing a three week unit on dinosaurs because the kids love dinosaurs (laughs) and they thought it was fun and things were very integrated back then. My, in fact, my bachelor's degree actually says interdisciplinary studies. It doesn't even say elementary education, Everything was come up with an idea and find a way to blend science and social studies and math and English language arts all together within this common theme. Of course, this is elementary versus a secondary school. But I've seen that pendulum that was way up on the far side shift down and crest over to the other side to the point where I'm sitting in a hallway watching children literally get sick before they take their standardized test because they're so anxiety-ridden about failing. It gives you pause as a leader, whether you're a school administrator or a district leader or a classroom teacher leader, it just gives you pause to to just take a step back and say, what are we doing to these kids? Like, what are we doing? And so the three-week unit on dinosaurs, probably not the most ideal way to teach something, testing so much that you have, you know, 10 year olds that are, that are nauseous walking down a hall. That's a little too much. So I think for administrators, the greatest challenge is how do we, how do we take those reforms and take those initiatives and take those things that were handed to us and said, you have to do this. And how do we give grace and empowerment to those teachers who are directly under our care that they can meet those criteria that they need to meet, while also meeting all those other needs of children that aren't stated by a standardized test.
0: As you know, as a leader, we learn through difficult situations and experiences. So was there a trial or failure you experienced that created the most growth?
1: <laughs> oh my goodness, wow, we could have a whole podcast on my failures, <laughs> to be honest with you. There are so many, so many to pick from. You know, I think the first one that popped in my mind still, even to this day, actually happened during my student teaching experience. I was student teaching in a rural school and I had a student in this class that I just felt like we were like oil and water. You know, I just I tried everything I could to to be friends with him, to get him to, you know, do his work. And it just seemed like I was just head off at every single cuff that we had. Well, one day, recess time, let's all go out for recess. And the classroom teacher said, well, you know, you're, you're doing your, your student teaching right now. So I'll be in the building. And when you're done with recess, bring the kids in. And, you know, it's a pretty simple task. Well, we went, <laughs> we went outside and I'm watching the kids all scatter about and having fun. Well, this, this particular student that really had uh, given me a trial, uh, he decided to start climbing the fence that was way out back. And I saw him starting to climb that fence and I was like, Oh my goodness, what do I do? Like, I've got to make a decision right now. Do I go and run and chase after him, but that's going to draw attention and then everybody else is going to run. And then what's he, so I'm playing this out of my head, these different scenarios as I'm watching him and he would climb like a a little bit and turn his head to see if I was watching (laughs) him. And when he started to get a little higher, I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm in charge. Like, I'm really in charge. Like, this this isn't (laughs) a joke. I'm in charge. So I ended up trying to get to him as fast as I can. Well, by the time I got to the fence, he had climbed to the top. And what I did not know, and I don't think he knew either, is that the top of the fence was jagged. And as he climbed to the top, with his satisfaction on his face, he slipped. And when he slipped, the fence went into his hand hmm. and time froze. I was in charge. I was the leader and my student was st- impaled on a fence. <laughs> he right. was stuck on a fence. And this is before we had, we didn't have walkie talkie, you know, it was, it was, we were just out there. And luckily another teacher had seen what was happening had gone to get the, the regular teacher had come back out and the student ended up being fine. He did end up having to get some stitches in his yeah. hand. Um, he came down, but It was interesting because the dynamics between me and this student from that moment on, that instance bonded us in a way, and he became like my best buddy. (laughs) It was (laughs) like, I mean, it was like not that I would ever wish that on anyone for it to happen, but it was interesting how, in the face of something very, very scary for both of us, how student and teacher could actually kind of come together in that moment. I was very thankful that his parents were so understanding and very, very kind and graceful Mm -hmm. in that everybody makes mistakes. And being a student teacher who was truly just learning, this instance almost paralyzed me from really trying to be a teacher because I thought, oh my gosh, if I can't handle recess, I can't handle anything, you know? (laughs) And so I had to battle fear Mm -hmm. for several years as a teacher when it came time for recess because I was terrified that I wouldn't be able to watch over all the kids at all the same time and keep kids safe. Mm -hmm. Um, So that lesson, even though that was goodness more than two decades ago, that lesson still resonates on my heart. And I think now because of that, I'm probably overcautious when it comes to safety and keeping kids um, where they need to be, uh, just because I don't ever, ever want anyone to have to go through something like that again. Mm -hmm.
0: So in your experience, which leadership skills were the most difficult to develop?
1: I would say probably balancing all of the tasks and doing them all well. Because as an administrator or any leader in all honesty, you have unique skill set, I have unique skill set, and your leadership shines in different ways than mine do. But at the end of the day, you have to do all of your tasks to the best of the ability, whether they're your strengths or not. And so I think that's probably the hardest thing for administrators is one, figuring out what are your strengths, which areas are a little tougher for you to do. And then two, being able to complete the tasks, but also deal with tough circumstances. You know, if you're not strong with communication skills, but you have to speak to a teacher that really is having a tough time, that's going to be more of a challenge for you than someone else who, you know, just radiates with communication skills. So figuring out where your strengths lie and then trying to balance everything and do it well for everyone, I think is probably the greatest challenge. Mm
0: -hmm. So I always love providing our leaders with examples of practical strategies and initiatives. What is one initiative you've implemented on your campus or at your district that you are extremely proud of?
1: I would say an increased focus on kindness within my school, within my district even. I've worked directly with a classroom teacher several years ago to do a year-long kindness initiative. And that resulted towards the end of the year, uh, we did a couple of lessons together each month. And then in the spring, we had students do kindness passion projects where we literally gave every single kid in the class a $10 bill and told them to go change the world. Oh wow. And then, I know, it's exciting. They um, It was a grant funded through the Hanover Education Foundation and the kids got $10. They created their own act of kindness passion project. They went out in the community and completed their projects with their families or with their parents. And for those kids that didn't have support, we did it at school. And then in May, we had a kindness share fair where we invited different stakeholders and community members to come in and see their projects that they had completed. Once we started doing them digitally, We posted their projects on a kindness website that we share called Passion for Kindness with my school. And so when we first did that, it was just us, you know, me and the other teacher with her little class. But then the next year, another teacher wanted to join in. And last year we had three teachers. And I've noticed the conversations with many of the teachers in my elementary school, they're spotlighting kindness and they're excited to share their stories of how they're implementing kindness in their own classrooms and it's kind of been an organic kind of grassroots effort really it hasn't been like the principal saying we're going to do kindness as our theme this year it hasn't been that at all yeah. it's really just kind of it's just kind of brought on together by the teachers who are passionate about it and that ripple effect we've seen with the students and how many of our students are emulating the things that we're modeling for them with kindness each day and that's exciting.
0: Yeah, what a wonderful life lesson. So, obviously, we probably all know that this world needs a lot more kindness, especially with the climate <laughs> that our current yeah. country is in. How did you and your your other teacher come up with that as the topic to focus on?
1: So, I started delving into kindness for my 40th birthday. I wanted to do something kind of different for my birthday. And I had seen on Pinterest this gal that had done act, acts of kindness for her birthday. So I thought, well, that's kind of cool. And I had a friend of mine who said, Hey, you know, if you're going to do all, do all these things, you should write a blog, like start a blog, write stories about what you do and share it out. I thought, Oh, well, that's kind of cool. I didn't know what a blog was back then, but I figured you know, it was like, okay, I don't know. Let me Google it. Let me see if I can figure it out. And so that's what I did. I started um, a blog called celebrate kindness and every time I did an act of kindness, I wrote a story. So if I held the door open for you, I wrote an entire story about holding the door open for you, which might seem a little silly. And there were times when I was writing my stories where I was like, seriously, people are probably rolling their eyes. Like I'm sure there are just people out there that just don't get it <laughs> or they're judging me or whatever. But I kept at it. And then as, as I started to kind of finish out those 40 acts of kindness, the tragedy at Sandy Hook happened. Mm with all of those lives lost. And as an elementary educator, that particular tragedy just paralyzed me. I mean, just shot me to the core as if it had happened to my own school. And shortly thereafter, um, I saw a little posting on um, the Today Show. Ann Curry was asking people to do acts of kindness and to tweet them out with the hashtag 26 acts. And so right then I thought, well, I've just done 40. I could do another 26. Like that's surely I could do more. This time they were very, very deliberate. I tried to get to know the families. I tried to get to know the lives that had been lost. And I I actually researched them uh, to get a little bit more information. And then I tried to match my act of kindness with something that, might be, you know, a characteristic of the child that had lost their lives or the teacher or even the principal mm-hmm. who had lost their life. And once I did those 26 acts and kept telling the stories on my blog, that's when I realized this is bigger than me. Like this this might actually be my real purpose mm-hmm. in life is to scatter kindness. And so it was through that journey, I've been working in the same school the whole time as I was doing my kindness, my cooperating teachers knew about me and my blog. And I wanted to bring it into school. I was like, this is great. I'm doing it out of school. But how can I bring it in the school, you know, and I had a little kindness club blogging club. And then I was just talking with the teacher one day. And I was like, wouldn't it be so cool? If we like could do this all year? You know, we were just dream big. Right. Sure. And she was like, well, why not? Let's do it. And I was like, Ooh, well, so what, you know, what could we, what could we do? Like, let's brainstorm all these ideas. And then that's really this teacher and I brainstormed this idea. Of what if we gave, we empowered kids to do exactly what I did, but we helped them out by giving them money to do it because, you know, I'm at a title one school. Our students don't have a lot of money. So that's really what sparked the idea was collaboration with another teacher and then my own personal passion for kindness.
0: Well, I think that's a wonderful opportunity for us because you have written a book called A Passion for Kindness. And so for our our (laughs) aspiring leaders that have not had a chance to read this book, will you just kind of give us a quick synopsis?
1: Absolutely. So A Passion for Kindness is a deeper illustration of my kindness journey and the lessons that I've learned along the way. The first. Six chapters are very specific with different types of kindness initiatives and projects that I completed, and the second half of the book, Are actual real-world things you can do tomorrow to bring kindness into your schools or into your district. Uh, What I love personally most about my book is that I spotlight so many kindness cultivators. If you're looking to connect with kind people, you, you want to develop your PLN, or you're looking for other people that will also have great ideas, kindness is not just about me. I'm one little teeny tiny little seed of this whole big global garden. So there are lots of people mentioned in the book with lots of things they're doing and each chapter has a kindness cultivator spotlight. So you get to know 12 different people, a little, more deeply and I have a student spotlighted administrators teachers people from all different places around the world and then in the back of the book I have a whole reference section with websites where you can get free resources you don't have to pay a ton of money to be able to be kind (laughs) it's free it's all good and I even have a timeline of kindness events throughout the entire year so if you were looking to make kindness a theme for your school or you wanted it to be more of a focus, there's exact dates in there that you could move forward with that and plan accordingly.
0: Yeah, I have the book, I'm holding it right now. And there's so many wonderful references and resources in here. I wanted to just touch on one aspect of the book. In the beginning, you talk about how you would like others to share their story. And it talks about your own journey in that I found it really interesting that you attended a summer workshop led by authors. And you talk about kind of how you felt uncomfortable in that setting. So will you just share that with our listeners in regards to why you went about doing the writing group?
1: Absolutely. Um, I think there's always been a little part of me that's wanted to be an author, but it was such a big dream that it was unreachable. It was untouchable and for the most part unspeakable because who am I? Who am I to think that I'm worthy enough to be considered an author? Who am I to think that my words might inspire someone else or have value to someone else? So I spent many, many years undervaluing my worth or devaluing my worth and and not recognizing that all of us, everybody, myself included, <laughs> have the power with just our own words and experiences to reach the souls of other people and, and encourage them and motivate them and inspire them. So for me to get to that place of recognition, I did realize, wow, you know, if I want to be an author, then I need to hang out with authors. (laughs) Like I need to, I need to find a new friend group that can then help me learn and grow because that's, you know i don't i don't know how to be an author i don't really even know who is an author you know so i saw something on twitter about the two different things i saw kate mesner had a little teachers write, teach write, teachers write group. And then I saw another friend of mine that I was connected with on Twitter had said, Hey, like I'm part of the, at the time it was called compelled tribe, but now it's called compelled bloggers. And he was like, Hey, like I'm part of this writing group. Do you want to join us here too? So it was kind of toggling between two different writing group. One were like educators who were writing. The other were actual authors, published authors. And between those two, those two experiences, I was able to embrace vulnerability in my own writing and to be brave, to share my thoughts and to delve into different aspects of writing that I hadn't even considered before and to be vulnerable with feedback and to be able to know what that feels like to be a student of writing and to have someone say, "Well, you need to work on this or maybe you should think about that. And then, as I started doing more and more writing, my voice just appeared in my writing. I don't even think I realized it. Um we each have a, a unique writing style, and your style might be very different than mine, but that, that's fine. You know, everybody has their own style for different different types of readers. And through that process, I just realized, wow, well, you know, I think of a story that's worthy of reading because if I was reading a book, I think I'd want to read my story because it has everything that I was looking for. You know, I was looking for a way to bring kindness in the classroom and I was looking for resources and I couldn't find a book that had what I needed. So that's when I started feeling that little whisper in my heart saying, well, you can't find that book because you're the one that's meant to write it. And that's what sparked that journey.
0: On that note, I want to pause for just a moment to share that I absolutely love the kindness message that Tamara shared. So in light of this kindness movement, one of my email subscribers will be winning a copy of A Passion for Kindness from the Aspire Book Giveaway. To enter, go to joshstamper.com and sign up for the Aspire newsletter. The winner will be selected and announced on Friday, August 30th, 2019. And as a subscriber of the Aspire newsletter, you are automatically entered in future book giveaways. So I know another passion of yours, and you speak on this often, is the power of student choice and voice. So what do you do on your campus to increase student voice?
1: So it's really important for students to know that they are heard. And different teachers, I'm in an elementary school, so obviously the strategies that we do at the elementary level are going to vary widely from what middle school and high school teachers will do with their students. Kids want to be heard. They want to know that they're important. They want to know they matter. They want to know that that they're seen. And so in the smallest of ways, you can empower student voice by simply being out there for them and striking up a conversation with them and getting to know them by name getting to know their interests. I did bus duty for the longest time. And instead of grumbling about it at the end of the day, oh my gosh, here we go. Uh, Cause our bus duty lasted for about 45 minutes while we were waiting for all the daycare vans to come. I saw it as an opportunity to really get to talk to the kids and to learn about them and find out, you know, who's doing gymnastics and who has a football game this weekend and who has a little brother that they're actually taking care of on the weekends. And, and it's through those conversations with kids that they're empowered to realize that their voice matters and that their story matters. They matter. And that can't happen if they don't have a way to share that. So as a technology integrator, I, of course, lean towards technology tools that will allow students to do that. So in my school, we use Flipgrid as an app on the iPad for student voice. Students can record themselves in Seesaw. That's another app that we use. Older students use Google. So we get them into Google Docs and we have them sharing with their classmates and collaborating with the comments and adding to each other's stories and, you know, and just having a multitude of opportunities for kids to talk with each other but to also share things with you. So another thing that I created actually from the first story in my book, uh, we had a situation where the girls weren't getting along with each other in class. So that instance actually sparked me to create a Google form kind of like a, what I would wish my teacher knew, but it was a Google form where they could write anytime at anything that they wanted to share. And we just put the website link on the board and stayed there all year. Mm -hmm. And the stories that the kids would tell you, you know, at first they were tattling more, but by the end of the year, they were really like lots of interesting things you learn about your kids, you know, that they just want to share and, and you just draw closer to kids when you can empower them with voice.
0: And so being a tech specialist yourself, I feel like I need to ask this, what do you believe is the role between technology and our schools?
1: So I think the number one thing that's so important for people to understand is that the world that we live in now is not the same world that we grew up in. It's very different. And the kids are coming to us with their brains literally wired differently because of their digital experiences that they've had outside of our schools. And so if we're still teaching in the exact same way that we did 20 years ago, we're doing a disservice to ourselves and to our students because we're not reaching them in a way that resonates with them. They can't make it that connection. Their brains aren't wired that way. So It doesn't mean that you throw out everything you have and you 100% are digital, but you just have to have an empathy for that, that kids, they just are growing up in a different world. And it's tougher for them as they navigate through middle school and high school because they have this whole realm of social media communication that didn't exist when I was in school. And, you know, with many of the people that are teaching the classrooms now, and those come with such weighted challenges for our students. So as we're teaching them the required curriculum, I think it's important that we constantly emphasize citizenship with our students, both in and out of the classroom, on and off the digital grid, because the most that that child is gonna interact with you, they're gonna probably do you know four times that interaction after they leave the school building online. And so we want to make sure that they are prepared for a world that's going to communicate and collaborate digitally. And so we do have to kind of integrate some technology with our students so that they have the skills so that they can compete later on for jobs and feel successful and feel comfortable and knowledgeable about what they're using but that takes time and it takes support. And so that my role as a technology integrator is allow me to be your support person. And if I can't be that support person, find someone else. Like we're in this together. Don't feel like you're faced with having to do all this alone. Like let's find a way that even makes small changes that could impact students in a positive way.
0: So I know you're really enjoying your position. So what is the best part of your job?
1: The best part of my job is I get to claim more than 600 students as my own. <laughs> when I was a classroom teacher, I loved being a classroom teacher, uh, but I had 20, 25 kids in my class, you know, and I worked with yeah. them and I love them and I poured my heart and soul into them. But now I have so many kids that I can impact and that I can be a part of their life and they can be a part of my life. And just knowing that, that I can be an influence in a positive way to so many children is really part of a big reason what keeps me in this position today, instead of trying to climb that administrative ladder, because I just love working directly with the students and being a part of their everyday.
0: In closing, for those who do not hold a leadership position, what are some ways our aspiring leaders can make an immediate impact?
1: Well, the first thing you need to do is you need to see yourself as a leader (laughs) (laughs) because you are, that is step one. Even if you have to take a post-it note and write, I am a leader and stick it on your mirror. So you see it every single day, do whatever you need to do to remind yourself of that. Every single person listening to this podcast, you have leadership skills. You have them. Now you just need to let them shine. So I would encourage your listeners to seek out opportunities to stretch yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit and and do things that would represent leadership in the eyes of many. So maybe uh, you've never presented anything at your district level. Well, ask someone if they'd like to do it with you so you're not doing it by yourself the first time. Maybe you've never voluntarily joined a committee because you've always been told what committee to join. We'll seek out some other opportunities opportunities and ask if you can join because just your interest in wanting to join a committee shows leadership. (laughs) And then once you get on different committees and things, look for ways that you can assist with taking charge of that committee or that group um, and just volunteer your time. The more you start to recognize your own leadership skills, the stronger of a leader you will be.
0: Tamra, how can our listeners connect with you on social media?
1: Well, it's pretty easy because most of my social media handles are my name. So on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Tamara Letter. On um, Facebook, I have a Passion for Kindness group. So if you're a Facebook user, you can just go right to the search bar and type in a Passion for Kindness and join our kindness group. I have a website that also has my name. It's www.tamaraletter.com. So any of those ways will get us connected.
0: Please continue to check out the Aspire podcast. And if you've gotten any value from this show at all, please subscribe and leave a rating and review wherever you're listening. Don't forget to use the Aspire lead hashtag as you continue the conversation on social media. Tamara, thank you so much for being on the program.
1: Thank you so much. It was such a delight to chat with you tonight.